I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to a Dealmaker's DNA. I uh, have a very interesting guest named Brian Gelman. Brian is one of the founders of uh, Albert Gelman Incorporated. They established, uh, you know, owner-managed businesses with debt and litigation, specializing in commercial and residential real estate, insolvencies, all sorts of fun stuff. And Brian has the, uh, the designation as the first person that's actually reached out to me and said, hey, I should be on this which I loved. And it's something that I want to actually talk about. I'm going to, I'm going to leave it for later because I'm a massive believer that people don't ask enough. And it's incredible to me how much you get out of life if you just have the chutzpah to actually ask. But Brian, so thank you very much and welcome. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So Brian, I always love starting off because like we actually don't know each other that well. I don't know you at all. <laughs> I've met you once. Yeah. So, so, so tell me about, you know, kind of how you got to where you're at, you know, wh- where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Give us some flavor as to, you know, a bit of your history. So first off, thanks again for having me. Appreciate it to you and Ken for putting this together. So yeah, like my history is, I mean, I grew up in Toronto. I grew up in a middle-class family. My parents were very, very hardworking people. My dad is an accountant, but basically he got out of that. And they opened up a carpet and flooring store on Bloor Street. And I guess, like, to me, that is, from my childhood perspective, that's where it all started. It's pretty odd that you remember things going back to when you were a kid. But all I remember is the store. Why? Why was it so pivotal in your childhood memory? Because it was all, I shouldn't say all, but it was a lot of what my parents talked about. Our livelihoods were all supported by this retail business on Bloor Street, and it wasn't an easy go. My parents, you know, they, they sold carpet and flooring, so it's, it's not easy. My dad would go on appointments. My mom would be at the store. I would constantly be at the store with them on weekends, as an example. They would put out carpets on the sidewalk, and they would stick me out there as a 10-year-old, and I would sell little carpets for five bucks a piece. And my mom always said to me that that's where this began. That's where the salesmanship began, the extrovertedness and all that stuff. And, and I would spend tons of time there. I would have to clean the basement of this disgusting store. And the basement was horrible. It was like where it was dark and dingy and where all the inventory was. I was a stock boy at Chopper's Drug Market. That was my first gig. I mean, I think going through that is super important to like earn your stripes. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. And like, I can still smell it. There's a scent that these places leave behind in your brain. Anyway, so that's where I grew up. And uh, my parents did okay in life and they put food on the table. But what they always said to me always was, you will never go in this business with us. It will never survive. And they were right. Like my father, as an example, brought in cork flooring from Portugal into Canada. And that was one of their, that was one of the things that really gave them the uplift in life is they brought this in and then they started selling it. And as an example, now Home Depot sells it. But, you know, years ago, 15 years ago or 10 years ago, they just decided to close up shop because small retail wasn't working anymore. 
So they really like they knew that this this business would have a lifespan. Did they know that the that the business had a lifespan, or or did they just know that they didn't want you doing what they're doing? The latter. They always said to me, "You can do way better and get out there and hustle and do what you want to do." And that family businesses ultimately take a left turn at some point, and they were right. Ultimately, they stopped making money and they shut it down and they retired. You had your you know the first bug of entrepreneurship and you know, salesmanship, I guess, you know, selling the $5 carpets. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> How did that translate into your kind of teenage years, your, your early 20s? I mean, obviously you went to school because you have, you have a designation, but were you, were you hustling during that as well? So I was always hustling. I was really into cars and car detailing, and I car detailed cars till my hands were... That's hilarious. That was my university job. I started a company called A-plus Car Detailing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you did what you did. Like I worked at a, I worked at a Range Rover dealer who taught me how to detail cars. And then I was like, this is nuts. Why would I continue doing this when I could just do it on my own? So I left, I hit up all my parents' friends, and then I started to get great traction. I made, I made a lot of money doing that as a kid. You did it in people's driveways? Yeah. Or if they were, or if, or if I could get them to, I'd get them to come to my house, make it easier. But Whatever it was, it was like, I always had the bug to start a business, always. I was just always interested in, in the dynamic of setting something up like that. You know what, honestly, I can't explain it. The entrepreneurs are crazy. We're a different seed in my mind that needs to blossom. It's like you can't sit still. It's got to grow. And you're not happy until you do. And frankly, I really wasn't happy until I did this. I really wasn't. I struggled. There's definitely a common trend that I've noticed with uh, entrepreneurs and that lack of settling. Like I have ADD and I find like a lot of entrepreneurs have ADD, whether it's diagnosed or, or undiagnosed. Most are undiagnosed at our age. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm actually sure. diagnosed. <laughs> oh, you are, eh? Okay, yeah. that's fine. Yeah, yeah. What made you land up going into insolvency? Yeah, so it's a really, okay, good question. And by the way, this doesn't need to be all about me. It can be about you too. I, I feel bad I'm not asking you questions. No, no, that's the job of the, uh, of, of the interviewer. So what landed up attracting you to the insolvency world? I mean, that seems like an interesting one. Yeah, it was. It was totally out of left field. I was in university doing like a, an e-com degree or bachelor of administrative business degree at Western. And basically, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I applied to do like a master's in e-commerce at Dalhousie as an example. And I got a phone call from somebody. And let me take a step back. When I was in high school, my father took me as a graduation present to Jackson Hole, Wyoming to go skiing. And it was on that trip, the first day, first run, my father bails. He totally wipes out hard on the first run, snaps his ACL. And we're in Wyoming. So Basically, we went to the hospital, and he had to be in the hospital until everything settled down. And every afternoon, I would ski with a group of guys that my dad went down with as part of like the flooring show or whatever. One of the guys who was a friend was my former boss, who five years later, when I was in university, picked up the phone and called me and offered me a job. And I hadn't spoken to him in five years. I barely even knew who this guy was. So obviously I was intrigued by the job offer. He basically called my mother and asked me for my phone number in university. I mean, that's interesting, right? Getting a phone call from a grown man asking to speak to your son. But why do you think that was? I mean, what was so memorable about that interaction that he had with you that led to that five years down the road? I don't know. His name is Alan Spurgel. 
And Alan is the, I guess, the president of a, I would say, small firm, mid-sized firm in Toronto, doing like high volume personal bankruptcies and stuff. Anyway, he called me, I guess, you know what, like I skied with these, with a bunch of adults. I was 15 years old. So something happened where I guess for some reason I was in the memory bank. And uh, five years later, I was in university and he calls me and says, I want you to come in for an interview. And my dreams of going to e-commerce, masters of e-commerce in Dalhousie were over because I just, I wanted to get out of school. I wanted to start working. So I graduated right away. I switched degrees in order to graduate after three years. And right when I graduated, I went to start working there. And it was crazy, right? Like, like who gets that opportunity? The reason I asked you what you did is because I'm a massive believer in memorability. And what I find is that the most memorable people are the most authentic. And the reason I say that is because people are so used to ignoring the facade of individuals, especially in business. You know, people always have this like business version of themselves and the personal version of themselves. And like, I've always prided myself in being the same motherfucker all the way through. Yeah. <laughs> My friends, the same way I speak to people in business and I treat people with respect. They treat me with respect. And, you know, you strike me as someone who is pretty authentic. I mean, I can tell by the tone that what I'm seeing now is probably how you are all the time. Wanted to get your gauge on, on whether you agree with that, because I do think there's this massive correlation between authenticity and memorability. Yeah, I think the proof's in the pudding, right? I think that that myself and this guy, we just aligned somehow. And I didn't see it happening at the moment, but I think that for some reason, he just saw something in me. And frankly, I mean, I'm so thankful that he actually did that. We haven't spoken in years, and that's because I left his business 10 years later, and now I compete against him. But you know, that's, I guess, how it goes. But that's really unfortunate. But yeah, I'm, I'm truly thankful that he offered me that job because it started me in a career that I'm fascinated with. I love this career. I love, and I'm being totally authentic now. Like I, I love this career. I love it. I wouldn't want to do anything different. And everyone around me knows my feeling on this. Why do you love it? Because it's a weird thing to love. As you probably know or don't know, I, I play in the same space from a, from a, a purchasing perspective, like a you know private equity perspective. I love kind of turnarounds and things that are complicated and hairy, but most people don't. So what is it that you love? That's a great question. I'll go with the first thing that just crossed my mind, right? Like one thing that I love is I love the deal. I'm a networking guy. So my business does not advertise at all. Zero. I'm totally against it because I think that people's personalities can advertise for us. It may not be as scalable, but I've got a nice business and I've, and I've built it with my business partner, Joe. But truly, it's about networking and using your personality, using my personality skills in order to solicit work and frankly, become friends with a lot of the people that I, that I work with. I'm, I'm great friends with most people that refer me work. And it's about them calling you and you helping them. That's it, man. Are you passionate about the process of building your business or are you passionate about the actual work you do or a combination of both? Oh, for sure. Both for sure. Because I love building the business. My team is incredible. They're all my friends. They'll tell you that. And I trust them implicitly and they've got my back always. And I've got theirs. I'm a huge team guy. And then I also love the work. 
we've had some incredible work, okay? Two years ago, we were the court-appointed receiver for the Ontario real estate owned by the Islamic Republic of Iran. That is an extremely political file that came in. I answered the call from a lawyer that I know, and I managed the file basically by myself. But victims of terrorism who had sued the Islamic Republic of Iran and gotten judgment for acts of terrorism, they then enforced judgment and found real estate in Ontario. And I seized it all and sold it and ultimately distributed approximately 30 million back to these victims. You got a file like that, which is extremely complicated and political, and it was all over the news and Iran, they fought back with their press people and it was, it was crazy. But my point is you get that and then someone at my office calls me to say that there's this little old couple, both of them have cancer, they're struggling with debt, they live at Bayview and Steels, and they don't want to come to one of our offices. So I said, no problem, I'll go to their home. So I went to their little apartment and met with them because they, like, Elan, people need help. They just need help. This family, this, this husband and wife were both very sick, stressed out of their mind, freaking out. And all it took was one, me to go to their apartment and meet with them and calm them down and tell them that bankruptcy is not the end of the world for them. It won't change their lifestyle one bit. And that was like, there's no bullshit, man. This is serious stuff. You're dealing with people's emotions. And like with these two people, they still call me just to say thank you. In what other universe, in what other career do you get to deal with, in one case, you're seizing real estate to sell on behalf of victims of terrorism, no matter who the real estate belongs to. And then you're going to this uh, cute old couple's home, calming them down to the point that they call their children after to say, you know what, I just met with this nice man and he's gonna solve the problem. It's incredible. My staff love it. They love that story. And there's, there's hundreds like that. I wanna take a step back into your childhood. I mean, I mean you, you speak about your, your, your father and mother quickly. It sounds like your father was more of the sales guy because you said he was on the road kind of selling. Your mom was managing the shop. Talk to me about you know, kind of what you learned from them I want to ask you, you know, a question about nature and nurture, which you know I'm going to ask. How much of you is just bred into you and how much do you think was, you know, what you learned along the way or, or you know, and, and how much do those coincide? Nature versus nurture, eh? <laughs> Were you born this way? I mean, you're an extrovert, you're a sales guy. Like, I think it's got to be a combination because, you know, you're born with your parents' DNA and then they need to teach you things. I'm like a brutally honest guy. And if I don't like you or I sense there's a problem, I'm not going to be offensive to you, but I'm not going to trust you and I'm going to get my back up. And, and these skills I've learned from my parents. I've also learned the other skills, which are my parents had a great mix. Like my father is a very calm guy. He's just totally happy in his way. He would meet people. He would use his personal skills and honesty and all that in terms of like, you know, imagine you're going to measure a home for a carpet, right? You've pretty much got the deal. But he was just a nice, lovable guy. Everybody loved him. He was not an extrovert, my dad, at all. Is not. Not an extroverted guy. My mother, on the other hand, she's a total extrovert. She's like all over the map, wants to get all the shit done. And I think that like, I've definitely gotten a combination of the two of them. Like retail's hard. You're dealing with people, problems, putting out fires. It's a pain in the ass business in, in my view, but 
anyways, that, I think it was a combination of both. This is what I'm most interested in. I, I, I'm always, always interested to think, uh, to hear what people, people's opinion is, because my, my, my opinion is that we're probably 80% nature and 20% nurture, and most people disagree with me. I have my parents' DNA. Like, that's a, that's a lot of percentage right there. <laughs> but, you know, my, my parents had a business on Bloor Street, and then they opened up another one at Young and Steele's, close to where we lived. And during the recession, they lost that business. And when you're in a family with a small business and you lose that business, it's the dinnertime conversation. I remember the fights. And my parents weren't sophisticated enough to open up separate companies. They paid off all their debts using profits from one. And it was tough. Like I remember specifically my mother yelling at me constantly to turn off the lights, that money doesn't grow on trees, turn off the goddamn lights. It was all about the lights. That's nurture because that was ingrained into me. I'm an extremely cost-conscious guy. I don't waste money. What do you think your parents did right along the way to give you the confidence and kind of the, the, the thought that you could kind of be anything you want and start your own business? And they obviously instilled confidence, they instilled creativity. They, they made you believe that it was possible. What do you think they did right? And, and, and the reason I'm asking you this is, as a parent myself, I think about all the time, you know, what are the tools that I should be using to instill these positive behaviors in, in my own children? Okay, so I know my parents did a lot right, but I certainly didn't grow up as this confident kid. I wasn't like the coolest kid in the room, I don't think. I didn't have the confidence that a lot of my friends had at all, actually. I just didn't. It was only when I started getting into business and finding myself that the confidence grew. But I can say for certain, I was not the most confident kid. I mean, my parents taught me to work extremely hard, extremely hard. You know, after a day's work, my mom would sit on the couch with a, you know, a folder and sign checks and look at invoices and approve invoices. It was constant work all the time, nonstop. Even when you're losing, when they lost the one half of their business, they were constantly working on that. How do you, like, winding down the business, losing money, like, you got to work through that. And they were extremely honest. Lying was not part of any option I ever had. And I do not lie. I just don't. And that's, I think those are the, like, working hard was certainly something that they taught me from a very young age. It's not up to us. We must work hard. And I don't think that like, I didn't have a ton of confidence as a kid. And then my confidence really started growing when I started working for my former company. And I could see that, wow, you know, with my personal skills, I'm able to drive in business. People do like me and they do want to work with me. And then after 10 years, I was like, you know what? I got to do this on my own. I've got that itch. This is not working here. I can't answer to somebody constantly. I can't ask for approval of my expenses. Like, it's just not going to work. I need to do what I got to do to make money and create my own livelihood. I'm, I'm not working for someone else. So let's transition to that because I know, you know, you had mentioned, you know, in, in the comment to me that, you know, you started in your basement. You know, tell, tell, tell me about the early years. I mean, was it all smooth sailing? Was there, were there bumps along the road? Talk to me about the first few years of, uh, of building the business. That was in 2011, the beginning of it. And basically, so my business partner, Joe Albert, is the opposite of me. He's a quiet guy, but he's a terrifically nice guy. Not suggesting I'm not, but 
I remember the day that I walked into his office and said, I'm leaving and we're doing this together. Actually, you know what? Was it like that? I'm trying to think. It was something along the lines of, I'm going, he called me crazy. And then I knew though that I wanted a partner. I did. And I basically said to him, you've got three weeks to tell me. And he thought I was nuts. Uh, he had worked for this firm for a long time and he thought I was crazy, but I was starting to drive in a lot of new business. And basically he came back to me a couple of weeks later and said, yeah, I'm in, let's just go. So we basically set up shop in my basement. We had, it was like this dingy basement at the time in my old house, but it had two desks, a photocopier in the middle, a server in the back corner, another little desk we set up for someone else that we had hired. And basically Joe, every single morning would come to my house with his briefcase, like just like this older guy. He would walk into my house. <laughs> it's, this is so Joe. It didn't matter if one of my kids was playing in the living room, blinders. He would just walk right into my house, right to the basement and just head down. <laughs> and we did this for a while until we started to see that we were gaining some traction. I remember going to um, TD Bank and saying to them, listen, I'm broke right now. I don't have any money, but I'm going to open up all my trust accounts here and do business with you guys. But I, in return, I would ask that you introduce me to your special loans group in Toronto. And they said, we've heard of you. We know you went out on your own. We've heard of this. And at the time, I was 30 years old. So that's a really nice compliment to get. And they said, absolutely, we'll make the intro. And I've been working with uh, the bank ever since. And it's been a phenomenal working relationship. It really has. And then I went after several other banks to ask them for work. And they started giving us the work. And it was phenomenal. And that's where the confidence really started, is that if you're an honest guy and you do good work and good service, you can make a life for yourself. I introduced you. And the first thing I said was you were the first one to ask and I said, I come back to it. I think this is as good a time as ever. I am such a big believer in the ask. I think there's so many people who beat around the bush and just never get to the ask, you know, that really do themselves a disservice. Maybe speak to, to me about, you know, why you find that people have a hard time with the ask and, and what you found in your career about, you know, asking because I'm amazed at how much you can actually accomplish by just asking. I think people are just afraid, right? People are naturally scared. And yesterday I cold called an accounting firm. Like I'm still cold calling all the time because I love it. I, I basically set up a phone call with an accountant in Toronto who I don't know and he doesn't know me. I set up a Zoom call. We spoke for 45 minutes. It turns out we've got a ton in common. He's like a guy that you, you wouldn't think I would have anything in common with, but we did. And at the end, I said, listen, I don't know what trustees are using, and I'm not going to refer you any work back because I don't have a lot of work to give. All I can give you is great service and great knowledge. And he told me he's using two other trustees. And I said, that's great, but I want you to try me on your next file. And I'm asking that of you. And he said to me, yes, done. I said, great. I'm going to send you a package of information on us. I'm going to send you a whole ton of business cards. And the ask is critical because if we ended off that call with me 
just having a cute chat with him. What the hell's the point? I mean, I'm going after him for business. He knows that. So if I'm going to go to the effort of giving him a call, setting this up, doing this, the last thing I'm going to do is say, okay, Bob, I need you to send me some work and I'm going to impress you and whoever else you're using. If you want to keep using them, fine. But right now I need you to give me some work and I'm going to show you how amazing my company is. And a hundred percent, he will give me his next file. So going back to the ask, if you like, people don't ask, I think, because maybe they just are afraid of rejection. I don't know. I think that's what it is. I think the people are scared of rejection. Yeah. Like reject me. If you want to reject me, I'll tell you why you shouldn't reject me. And I will keep coming back. I just approached another bank four weeks ago. Guy was ignoring my call for, I don't know if he was ignoring it, but he didn't get back to me. So I just kept going, 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 going. And he called me back and finally I said, I said to him, and I won't, I won't say what bank it was, but it was a major bank. I said to him, you guys don't use us. And several of the other banks do. You're totally missing out. We're about to go into a crazy period of the recession. Small business needs, you know, small business, medium-sized business. This is going to be, you're going to see more files come in. You need to try me. And finally, after like, I think four phone calls, voicemails, everything, he said to me, okay. I try and implore, you know, all young entrepreneurs and people that want to, you know, accomplish something special in their lives to just put yourself out there. You got to be willing to put yourself out there because without it, you're never going, like, you're never going to become an outlier by going with the flow. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And then I'm not suggesting that I know everything about um, business, but then then you build up your team. And on my team, I've got so many, everybody is my equal. That is a hundred percent. I've learned that from day one. I do not treat anybody on my staff like they are beneath me. I can't stand structure of hierarchy. It drives me nuts. All of my people are are my equal. When I get a question that comes in, I have no problem saying, I have no idea of the answer, but this person on my team will, and they will get, like, I, I just hierarchy disgusts me. It's an old school way of, like for small business, I mean, banks have to have hierarchy as an example, because that's how things work. Otherwise, it might, the, the whole tree might fall. But for small business, I really implore the team methodology. I have very, very little turnover at all. And we've grown substantially over the years. So I'm just a big believer, like everyone knows in my company, and I call it mine, but it's, it's ours, everyone on the team, this little thing that we've built, it belongs to us. And they'll tell you that I'm the first person to cold call, even though you might think I, I'm beyond that. Some people might say who are in a hierarchy structure, no chance. I love calling people and I love... So, so Brian, that's a perfect transition. I was about to ask you about... You know, you, you mentioned how all, all the people on your team are your friends and that they, you know, they have their, you, you have their back, they have your back. What do you think the key outside of, you know, I, I know your views are hierarchy. I might challenge you on them a, a little bit later because I'm, I'm a huge believer in no hierarchy of opinion, but I do believe a hierarchy in decision-making is important because I think it causes chaos if someone's not ultimately responsible for decision. But what do you, you believe are important in, in building a team? I mean, obviously respect that's, uh, you know, you mentioned that. I think you have to be fair. I think the key to hiring is you have to be fair with people. You can't treat hiring somebody like a business deal. That's not how you hire someone. You have to look at them for your strong points 
you have to try and understand their weaknesses because we all have them, but you got to look at people for the bright side of things and truly what, what they're good at, not try and fit people into what they're not good at. I think that what my teammates will tell you is that I am fair. I try and be fair always. Some people say they try and be fair, but they're extremely selfish. They're not being fair. That's just bullshit. I am a fair guy and I know it because I think that my team and I get along to such an extent that they would tell you the same thing about me. I want to go back to this, this hierarchy idea because when I started my business, I probably would have said to the T what you said, like no hierarchy, nothing. And you know, as we've scaled, it's become increasingly obvious to me that that's an impossible way to scale. It worked up until a point and then it became impossible. You mentioned that big companies need hierarchy, which I agree with. But do you think you want to build a business that lands up needing hierarchy? Or are you quite content maintaining a good business that is in the vein of, of what you believe and, and makes you happy? Because I can tell you, I think a lot, of, a lot of people try and scale companies they shouldn't scale because what they have right now is so good and effective. And then they fuck it up, but not only the actual business, but they, but they mess up their enjoyment in the business. I mean, what's your view on that? That's a great question because I always wanted to build a scalable, large consumer insolvency business. And it was only until recently that I realized I don't want that. I do not want that. The advertising power that you need and all that, you got to use the skill set that you have. My skill set is building the team and using my personality and our team using their good service base and good knowledge to bring in work. So let's get back to hierarchy, okay? My business has a hierarchy, but what I do is I implore people to make decisions. I tell them it's okay to fuck things up. It's okay to make mistakes. Just stop coming to me. Everyone that I work with in my business knows this. Don't come to me. Figure it out. Figure out the problem. Use your resources. Help each other. And yes, if there's a decision that needs to be made, they will always come to me if that decision is needed. But I just, I I try and tell people, if I have to remind you, if I have to follow up with you to do something, you're not going to work well in this business at all. You need to be an organized person and you need to have the confidence to make decisions and make the right ones, being rational and a good person. And then if you still can't, then yes, there there is a level of hierarchy to make decisions. But what I mean is, there's no hierarchy in terms of, I don't have a fear-based approach at all, which I know a lot of business owners do. People are afraid of them. And as a result, that fear contributes to them having low self-confidence, which means they don't ever want to make decisions because they're afraid of the outcomes. My management style is totally the opposite. I implore people to make great decisions. They're going to make some mistakes. We're all going to learn. No one's going to lose the, the roof on this one. So I, I think that you can have hierarchy, but it's extremely respectful. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that hierarchy doesn't have to come with fear, right? I think that people confuse those things. You don't need to create fear in a hierarchical organization. You can absolutely be a coach is still a hierarchy and and a coach is, you know, a good coach should do the opposite of inspire through fear. They should inspire through inspiration. And I view it the same way. I think that the best leaders are coaches and are, are trying to get the best out of their people and help those people evolve and progress and become the best versions of themselves. 
not only the best version of themselves that fit into the organization, genuinely the best versions of themselves. I think that's super important. And I think that's what some coaches and leaders get wrong is they try and mold an individual only to the benefit of the business as opposed to the benefit of the business and that individual. Yeah. And and like, so as an example, though, we have an associate, um, this young guy at our firm, he came to Canada. He was a CPA at Ernst & Young. That's one of the things that in our business we try and do is our associates and our everybody's a chartered professional accountant. I'm actually the only one that's not, but everybody else is. I want people to have a great knowledge base for their, uh, you know, their way around a set of books. But this guy, he came from India, from Ernst Young, landed in Canada, and we had been trying to hire an associate for a long time. And I interviewed him and I felt a connection with this guy that was incredible. I felt his knowledge base was incredible. I felt that his ability to want to learn and come to the country. I mean, talk about taking a risk. You leave your country where you're a chartered professional accountant there. You're a young person. You come to Canada alone. You apply for a job. I remember I walked into Joe's office and I said, Joe, I just interviewed this guy. No one else is meeting him. No one else needs to. Like I'm I'm making him an offer right now. And Joe just said to me, similar, he said, just go with your gut. I hired him. And what I also try and do is I try and train everyone myself. So this associate, I've now trained him myself. And that's really how I try and do it for everybody. I'm instilling the power in them. I'm, in, I'm trying to instill that entrepreneurial flavor. He's never marketed in his life. He's always been a numbers guy. But I've said to him, you know, when you're ready, I want to start, I want to show you how, train you how to market, how to sell. So he's been an incredible addition to the company. And some would say, Brian, why are you, why are you training? And it's like, I don't know, I love it. And I love the people. And that's how the relationship is built. Good leaders should love leading. So that's, uh, that, that's important. I mean, you know, I, I say something over and over again, you can't outwork passion, right? I mean, that's why passion is so important. If it's someone's job and it's your, it's your passion, <laughs> the passion's going to win every single time. But Brian, I, I'd be remiss. I mean, I have you on here. We haven't spoken once about COVID, which I'm super happy about because I try and avoid it completely because we hear enough about it everywhere we turn. But the reality is in the world that you live in, you know, there's some really, you know, distressed companies, you know, they've been propped up by government funding. And I think that the insolvency world, from everything that I've seen has actually been quite slow over the last, you know, six months. But I think everyone who is in that world knows that the flood is coming. Once the government, uh, the taps turn off, the flood is going to come. So you're in the space, you, you're speaking to the special loans departments, you're speaking to the lawyers. I mean, give us a flavor for, for what to expect. I mean, how bad is it going to get? Is it all doom and gloom? I mean, unfortunately, you know, for you, doom and gloom is good, right? Or fortunately, doom and gloom is good. But you got to balance that with, you know, the human compassion side of it. So maybe just give me a view of, of what you think this market's going to look like over the next 12, 18 months. Go back to March, I guess. When did COVID start? February? March, February? All right. So my business was fairly busy, very busy, I would say. And pipelines started to dry up, as an example, maybe in, in June-ish, July. Maybe July, pipelines started to dry up. And obviously, that's because the government is propping everyone up with everything. And as an example, firstly, if the government did not provide wage subsidies directly to businesses, they would be done. They would just be totally toast. 
I applaud the government for doing that. I, I really do. It, it was a requirement. Okay. On the personal bankruptcy side, though, if you've lost your job and if you've lost your job and you have no money and you're getting two grand a month and it's not enough, the question is, where are you going to get your money from? And the answer is you're going to get it from credit. You're going to get it from your credit card. You're going to keep using your credit card to fund the overage of cost versus revenue every month. So what's happening now is that people are saying, I can't go bankrupt now. I can't file a proposal, which is like just a settlement offer. I can't file it now because if I do, I'm only going to have two grand of CERB money and I'm going to lose all my credit. So the only time that they can actually go bankrupt is when they get another job or they get their job back. Now their income is going to go up, CERB's going to go down, and the credit card companies are going to start collecting. I personally think on the consumer world, individual filings are going to skyrocket like we have never seen them before. I believe it will happen in the wintertime when people go back to work and they start to migrate back into a situation of income and their credit cards, just there's no way to pay it back. On the business side, here's what I've been seeing. Banks, at this point, they don't even know which clients yet are closed. So imagine if you have a, whole, if you have a slew of 100,000 restaurants with a small business loan and line of credit that you've just given a six-month deferral or three-month deferral. You'll only find out if you've got a three-month deferral. That's April, May, June. July, the branch starts looking at it. Okay, they're on holidays or whatever. So July and August is when the branches are now saying, okay, guys, we got to turn the pipeline for collecting revenue back on. So it was only in July and August that the banks, where their clients' deferrals were ending, where they had to come back and now finally figure out which of their customers were still in business. So now in August and September is where the banks are starting to now understand which customers are really having problems. And I foresee that the next, I would say, six months for my company, because we handle loans you know, from one to 10 million in those banks typically, that is where we're gonna see a gigantic inflow. We get work from accountants across the province and lawyers across the province. They're all going to have clients with these issues. And then there's going to be a trickle down. In certain cases, the banks, hopefully we can re rehabilitate these clients. Like That's the point, right? Work with them to figure out a way to keep them in business. But in some cases, it won't be possible. And then personal guarantees are going to get called on. And unfortunately, people are going to have to sell their homes to pay back. I think it's going to be uglier than people think. I think that we've been shielded by this government money and I think it's going to get ugly, unfortunately. Yeah. And I don't want it to get, I don't want it to. I'm a firm believer again, like if you're a good person and you do amazing work, you'll get enough work to keep you busy forever. You just will. I don't need this. I'm here to service the market, but there is going to be the biggest onslaught of insolvency filings, I think in the last 50 years. So Brian, I, I promised that I would uh, finish by about 10.25. Uh, so we've been, we've been going for a while. But before I, I have you leave, uh, you know, how, how can people find you? I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast are going are gonna to resonate with your kind of authenticity and your tone. Uh, where can they find you if you haven't found them already? Well, I guess like 
You know, really, it's about professional advisors finding me. We don't really get a lot of traffic from off the street. Lawyers, accountants, bankers, private equity guys, whatever, whoever. It's albertgelman.com. Easy to spell. Gelman's with one L. Albertgelman.com is our website. Look me up. And you know, like, like there's some people who might not resonate with me. You might resonate with other, with other great people in my company. You can call them too. So I want everyone to be well. I don't, the key is in my industry, there's trustees that only do personals. And then there's these debt counselors who, who claim to be, know what they're doing and they're unlicensed. People just need to be careful who they go to. Not every trustee is the same. Some people specialize in tiny personal files. Some people are doing the Air Canada's of the world. You've got to go, you've got to meet people, call different people and ask them what they do. Make sure they're licensed. It's a must. Too many people around here are just, anyway, I, I want people to get the right person for them. So, Brian, once again, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate your time. And until next time on Dealmaker's DNA. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.